Well, good morning, and before I get started in the message, I just want to say thank you again to all of you on behalf of Christy and our family. Just your generosity with this kitchen shower was uh, just tremendous, and we're so grateful. Uh, so thank you so much for your kindness to us. We deeply appreciate it. Uh, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to take a look at John chapter 11 this morning. So, Heavenly Father, as we have uh, just sung, we pray that you would change our hearts. Uh, Lord, we pray that your spirit would be at work, that we would be cooperative, that we would be uh, moldable and teachable. Pray that your, that your word would be powerful in us and that we would be responsive to it. Give us courage to make whatever change we need to make this morning. And so we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, when I was in Trinity College and seminary back in the late 80s and early 90s, or kind of mid-90s, I'm dating myself there. You can kind of figure out my age from there. But uh, Dr. Kenneth Meyer was the president of our school. And he tells the story of flying into O'Hare Airport one time, and as the big plane he was on passed over the 294 tollway, Meyer noticed a colossal traffic jam. I mean, traffic had become such a log jam that many people had actually gotten out of their cars, were standing on their bumpers and straining to see what was going on up ahead. So Dr. Meyer quickly looked out the other side of the airplane and, and he was able to see what the others could not possibly see from his perspective, which was the telltale flash of red lights and police cars and tow vehicles and all of that. Meyer knew that the problem was already being handled and that traffic would soon begin moving. And so as he walked to his car after landing, he had a completely different perspective from the average driver who was still out on the highway because he was able to see things from a different perspective, and he knew that he would be home soon. Perspective makes all the difference. Perspective makes all the difference. We are earthbound creatures with limited viewpoints. But what if, what if we could somehow look down from above and see the traffic jam in our lives from a higher perspective? Imagine the difference that that might make. Well, for the last several weeks, we have been in this sermon series called I Am, where we have been looking at seven statements Jesus made to make himself known to us, to invite us into a relationship with him. And this is the fifth message in that series. And today we're going to look at Jesus' statement I am the resurrection and the life from John eleven twenty five. 25. And when Jesus spoke these words, he was making a bold statement, especially when you consider the larger context, which we're going to look at in just a few minutes. But he began his statement with these powerful two words, I am. And I have explained in previous weeks that this is the sacred name, Yahweh, that God used to identify himself in a conversation with Moses. The Jews regarded this name as being so holy, they wouldn't even pronounce it. 
They wouldn't even say the name for fear of saying it incorrectly. They used the name Adonai instead. God's name was so esteemed and so revered amongst the Jewish people that the Jews actually created rules about how to show proper respect for the name of God. Let me give you a couple of examples to show you the links to which they went. There was a group of people called the scribes, and these folks were in charge of copying the sacred scriptures. And as they copied, whenever they came to the name of God in the text, they were to stop their copying, wash themselves, put on a clean set of clothes, and then write the name of God with a new pen and fresh ink. That's the extent they went to. Beyond that, so sacred was this name that if a scribe was writing, was in the middle of writing the holy name of God and the king entered his presence and addressed him, the scribe was to take no notice of the king. He was to ignore the king at the threat of his life. So sacred was the name Yahweh. That's how holy this name was to the Jews. So when Jesus used this sacred and most revered name of God to describe himself, his Jewish audience immediately recognized that Jesus was claiming to be God. And in their eyes, this was kind of the highest form of blasphemy, which explains why they so often reacted violently when he said these kinds of things in their presence. Now, to understand better the phrase, the resurrection and the life, we need to take a closer look at this context in which Jesus said it, which is verses 1 through 45 of chapter 11. Now, instead of reading the 45 verses out loud to you, I'm simply going to talk you through the story that is presented in these 45 verses, and we will pause along the way for me to give you some comments and explanation about what's happening. And then we'll take a couple of minutes at the end to consider how this applies to us today. So in the first verse of this chapter, we're introduced to a man named Lazarus. And Lazarus was from the town of Bethany. Now Bethany is this small town. It's about two miles, a little bit north and a little bit east of Jerusalem. Lazarus had two sisters, presumably older, though we don't know the birth order for sure, but presumably older sisters, Mary and Martha. And there are other New Testament passages that reveal that Jesus was actually quite close to this family, that he spent time in their home with them privately when he was in town, and he attended the occasional dinner party with them. So he had become quite fond of them. But now, Lazarus is sick to the point of death. So in verse 3, the sisters send word to Jesus saying, the one you love is sick. Now Jesus wasn't in Bethany, he was actually ministering on the east side of the Jordan River. So when the message reached him, Jesus responded and said in verse 4, this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory, 
so that God's Son may be glorified through it. And even though Jesus loves this family, you see that in verse 5, he loves this family, but he doesn't leave immediately for their home, which is contrary to what we would expect him to do, right? But even more surprisingly, verse 6 says he stayed where he was for two more days. So not only did he not leave immediately, he actually, actually waited two more days before going. Surprising, unexpected, not what we would have thought him to do. Now, after these two extra days of ministry beyond the Jordan, Jesus says to the disciples, it's time to go back to Judea. It's time to go back to Lazarus. And unbeknownst to the disciples, Lazarus has already died. Jesus tells the disciples in verse 11 that Lazarus has fallen asleep and I need to go and wake him up. But the disciples didn't really catch his meaning. They thought he was being literal, that Jesus was actually going to go and serve like as an alarm clock for Lazarus. And so in verse 14, Jesus had to be a little bit more blunt with them. And he said, boys, listen, Lazarus has died. He's dead now. Verse 17 tells us that when they arrived in Bethany, they learned that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Jewish people buried their dead immediately, almost always on the same day in which they died, unless that day happened to be a Sabbath day. But the rabbis taught that the soul of a person would linger near the body for about three days, just in case the body resuscitated. But once the fourth day arrived and decomposition started, the soul would depart. So by day four, in the Jewish mind, there was no longer any hope of resuscitation, miraculous or otherwise. Verse 19 tells us that many people traveled the two miles from Jerusalem to Bethany in order to gather together and comfort the two sisters as they grieved. But when Martha heard that Jesus was near, she left the group that had gathered and went out to meet him. And in verse 21, in anguish, she just cries out to him, Lord, if you had been here, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Anyone here ever cry out to God like that? Anyone ever had that sense of, Lord, you could have stopped this from happening. Why didn't you? If you had been here, if you had intervened, things would now be different. Well, I think a lot of us feel that from time to time. And the truth is, for some people, that cry of anguish is the last thing they say to the Lord before they abandon their faith and turn their back on him and walk away. And that's so unfortunate. So unfortunate. But it's not what Martha does. Not what Martha does. Look at her statement in verse 22. She says, after saying, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Then she follows it up and she says, but I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. In a way, Martha is saying, I still believe my faith in you is still intact. Sorrow and disappointment and pain, they don't push Martha away from Jesus. They actually cause her to cling tighter to him which is exactly as it should be. And you'll notice Jesus dealt so tenderly with these gals. 
He offered no rebuke. He expressed no disappointment. He didn't question, uh, you know, kind of their pushing against him. He listened. He empathized. He gave calm reassurance to them. And I think his gentle care for them is a marvelous example for any of us who might find ourselves someday walking with another person through grief. And Jesus' example is great for us as to how we would do that with someone. Jesus replies to Martha, your brother will rise again. And Martha said, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. I know. See, the Jews had a belief in the general resurrection after death, and they also believed in a final judgment that was to come. But Martha is actually responding to something specific that Jesus had taught earlier. A few chapters back in John chapter 6, Jesus had said, everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. That's in uh, chapter 6, verse 40. And Martha was clinging to that truth as she grieved the death of her brother. This is why she said, yes, I know, he will rise again at the last day. But Jesus wanted her to see something more. He wanted her to see something deeper. The teaching about the resurrection is meant to point us to Jesus. And doctrine is always essential, but it must also move from being just theoretical to being personal. Martha's belief in the resurrection and in eternal life is good, and it's correct doctrine. But it was meant to point her towards and to move her towards the person of Jesus. Friends, Christianity is more than just believing the right things. It's about putting our faith in a person. It's following Jesus and looking to him for everything that we need. So Jesus says to her, Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Let's just pause for a minute here. Can you imagine how hard this must have been for Martha in that moment? Because in a way, Jesus is asking her, Martha, can, you, can your faith stretch wide enough to embrace a new truth about me that seems contradictory to your circumstances? Let me say that again. He's asking her, Martha, can, you, can your faith stretch wide enough to embrace a new truth about me that seems contradictory to your circumstances? Her brother is dead, and Jesus is claiming to be the resurrection and the life. But this is faith, friends. And faith is never driven by, defined by, or dependent upon our circumstances. In fact, most often, because we live in a fallen world, our faith will, will be exercised in spite of our circumstances, in spite of them. And so Jesus asks her, 
do you believe this? And look at her response in verse 27. She says, yes, Lord, she told him. I believe you are the Christ, the Son of God who has come into the world. This dear woman, this dear woman is filled with sorrow and heartbreak and grief. I think she's disappointed by Jesus' delay and his apparent decision to do nothing on behalf of Lazarus. But her confidence in him has not diminished at all. She still believes that he is the Christ, the Son of God. And she believes what he has just told her about being the resurrection and the life. But she has no idea, no idea how that truth is about to change her day. She doesn't see it coming. But having confessed her faith, she believes him. But she returns home to get her sister Mary. When Martha told Mary that Jesus was here, Mary hurried to him. Verse 32 tells us that when she found him, she said the same thing to him that Martha had said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And then the text says she just broke down and wept. She just collapsed in front of Jesus in her grief. And when Jesus saw her torment and heard her weep, the text says he was deeply moved and troubled. And that word that describes Jesus is a word that can mean that he groaned in sadness as if under a tremendous weight. That same word can also be referred to the snorting of an animal. There was this thing in Jesus. Jesus was deeply stirred, that's the picture, and he agonized with Mary in her sadness. And then he said, where have you laid him? And they replied, come and see, Lord. And Jesus wept. And the Jews said, see how he loved him? In verse 38, Jesus and Mary and Martha and the crowd of mourners have now arrived at the tomb. And Mary and Martha are just beside themselves with sorrow and grief. But now Jesus is ready to act. From the time he got the word back on the east side of the Jordan that Lazarus was sick, Jesus knew this exact moment was coming, and he purposely delayed his arrival. That two-day delay was not an accidental misjudgment by Jesus, not at all. He did that intentionally to set the stage for what was about to happen right now. He said so that, the, that, that God the Father and Jesus the Son could be glorified in this. You see that back up in verse 4. When Jesus said to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life, this is what he meant. He was declaring that he is the author of life, the giver of life, the source of all life. The power to impart life, maintain life, and restore life rests in his hands. It is at his command. Death and decay have no power over him. Jesus holds the authority and the power to create and to recreate and to breathe life into. And that power was given to him by his father. 
that, G, that Lazarus has now been dead for four days will neither slow down nor stop what Jesus and his father have agreed together to do in this moment. And Jesus is ready to act. And so Jesus turns and he faces the tomb. That symbol, that which symbolizes the very power of death. Jesus turns and faces the tomb. And he says, take away that stone. But Lord, Martha said, by this time there will be a stench for he's been dead for, three, for four days. And you can tell even in this moment, even in this moment, Martha still doesn't understand what Jesus is about to do. And then Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? And so they took away the stone and Jesus looked up and he said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And I would imagine there was a long silence as people just waited to see what would happen. And then, and then the man who had died walked out of the tomb, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and, his cloth, and a cloth around his face. And Jesus said, take off his grave clothes, let him go. And can you imagine in that moment what thoughts and feelings must have been going through Mary's mind and Martha's mind? Can you imagine? Lazarus is alive. They had watched him die. They had buried him. And for four days, they had been heartbroken and grief-stricken. And now, now, he just walked out of the tomb. Jesus had raised him from the dead just by calling his name. How would they even begin to wrap their minds around it? They had, they had anticipated a, a, res, a resurrection at the last day, but this, they hadn't expected this at all. Jesus is the resurrection and the life, not just someday in the future, but right now as all of them stood outside of the tomb. And I'm sure... Mary and Martha feverishly began to unwrap Lazarus and then came the joyful carrying on as they wept over him and hugged him and began to dance about. What about you and me this morning? To hear Jesus call himself the resurrection and the life, what does that mean for you and me? There are so many things that we could linger on in this chapter that will be, uh, will be worthwhile, and we'll do it in later messages. But by way of application, let me, let me briefly mention four things for us to, to note this morning. The first is, God's delays are motivated by unconditional love. So trust Him. Trust Him. God's delays are motivated 
by unconditional love. I'm going to have you look back again at verse 3 to see this. The sisters sent word to Jesus and said, Lord, the one you love is sick. And the word they use there for love is the word for friendship, phileo, love. In a way, they were saying, Jesus, the one you love is your good friend. He's sick. And so, of course, they assumed he would come right away. To think otherwise would be uh, inconceivable, right? Well, verse 5 and 6 say, Jesus loved Martha and her, and her sister and Lazarus. Yet when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. The word that's translated love there in verse 5, the love Jesus had for this family, that's a different word than the word of love that Mary and Martha used. The word here that Jesus uses is agape love. It is that unstoppable, unconditional, highest form of love in which the lover always does what is best for the beloved. Agape love is the love that God has for people. It's the love Christ has for us. So while we might expect Jesus to try to get to Lazarus' bedside ASAP, that's not what our text says. Our text says, because he was driven by a love that would always do what was best for Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, because of that, he chose to delay his coming for two days because he had agape love. You know, from ground level, when we're in the midst of difficult circumstances, those circumstances often seem to suggest that God has abandoned us and left us on our own. When a child dies in his mother's arms as she pleads with God for help, she wonders where God is. When a Christian is falsely accused and pleads with God to bring vindication, but the proof arrives too late and his reputation is ruined, he wonders where God is. When we make ministry plans and a pandemic shuts the country down, we wonder where God is, right? We must admit that at ground level, sometimes it's hard to understand what is God doing and where is he in the midst of all of this. But the John chapter 11 elevates our perspective, just as the airplane did for my college president. Sometimes, sometimes, in the middle of terrible, horrible, no good, very bad circumstances, our good God chooses to not intervene immediately in our situation. And the reasons why he chooses this are only known in heaven. And while we don't understand it in that moment, and while we wish he would choose differently, we must keep a couple of things in mind. First, his ways are not our ways, and his thoughts are higher than our thoughts, Isaiah 55. Second, we need to remember that his actions are motivated by agape love, this unconditional love that always does what's best for the beloved. And remember what we learned last week about the good shepherd, that he always does what is best for the sheep, right? And we also need to remember that if we will trust him, if we will trust him, his answer to our prayers might be miraculous. His answer just might exceed our every hope and dream. And so I want to urge you 
this morning to trust him even when your circumstances create doubt. Trust him. Second, point of application, Jesus understands your sorrow and disappointment, so tell him. Jesus understands your sorrow and disappointment, so tell him. Both Mary and Martha brought their sorrow and disappointment to Jesus. Both of them said, Lord, if you had been here, our brother would not have died. We saw that both in verse 21 and in verse 32. Have you ever felt that way? You ever wanted to cry out to God that way? Where are you, Lord, or where were you? Where were you when my loved one died? Where were you when my marriage crumbled, when my parents divorced, when my father became an alcoholic, when I was cheated out of my promotion, when my child went astray? Where were you? If only you had been here, things would have been different. But notice again that when Mary and Martha poured out their hearts to the Lord with these words, the Lord did not rebuke them for those words. It was not sinful. It is not sinful to tell God how you feel. We, we should always be respectful toward God. He is God, after all, and we're not, right? But, but that does not mean that we have to hide our real feelings from him and that somehow we have to have it all cleaned up and sanitized before we can pray about something. The truth is all of us have disappointment, anger, frustration, and other feelings that need to be shared with God. We need to open up our hearts to him about those things. The feelings that we feel may not necessarily be right, but that's okay. Right or wrong, good or bad, cleaned up or messy, it doesn't matter. We can bring those feelings and thoughts and ideas and that weight that we're carrying, those burdens, we can bring all of that before the Lord. And he will not chastise you for doing so. You can do this, friends. In fact, you are encouraged to do this in the scriptures. The Old Testament Psalms contain numerous prayers in which the psalmist just poured out his heart to his Lord. And it was often not very pretty. Most of the time it was just pretty ugly. But God is more patient and understanding than most of us realize. Jesus understands your sorrow and your pain and you can tell him just like Mary and Martha did. Just tell just tell him. Third, Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Believe him. He is the resurrection and the life. Believe him. When Jesus identified himself as the resurrection and the life, he, now he was clearly affirming that there would be a final resurrection at the last day and that eternal life would follow our physical earthly life. And this is what Martha was initially acknowledging. But, but Jesus wants us to see a deeper reality about him, that he is the resurrection and the life for us today, even as we live out the rest of our earthly life. It's not just a reality for someday in the future. It's for us today. Pastor and author Warren Wearsby says this, Jesus is able to raise the dead and meet every need of the new life because he is the resurrection and the life. Our Lord can move into dead and seemingly hopeless situations and by his miraculous power, he can transform people and circumstances and infuse life-giving power that makes everything new. 
Over the centuries, this has happened in local churches, in other local ministries, and even in individual lives. And it can still happen today, Wearsby said. And you know what? He's right. He's right. So let me ask you this question this morning. Is there an area of your life that feels dead and hopeless this morning? Something, an area in which you feel like it's over. It, It can never be fixed. Do you have an area of your life that needs the resurrection and life-giving touch of Jesus? Friends, Jesus intends to transform our hearts, giving us daily, giving our daily life purpose and direction so that the gospel could bear fruit in our home and in our neighborhoods and in our jobs. And as we are transformed, then people around us will be drawn to that transforming power when they see it at work in our hearts. Marriages can get stronger. Homes can experience harmony. Forgiveness can be offered. Enemies can become friends. Hurts can be healed. And hatred can be turned into love. It really can happen. This is real, friends. The resurrection and the life is not some far-off day in the future. It is for right now. And Jesus is asking you and me the very same question he asked Martha. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? And like Martha, we must believe him. I urge you to believe him. We must trust him and we must obey him. Even when he tells us to move the stone and all we can think about is the reek on the other side of that rock, right? But here's the thing. Here's the thing. If you believe him, he just might speak a miracle into your circumstances and resurrect your situation into something brand new. He might. We can trust him for it. I hope that you will. Fourth and finally, like Lazarus, Jesus is calling you. So answer him. Jesus is calling you. So answer him. As Lazarus lay dead in the tomb, Jesus called his name. The author of life spoke, and that which was dead came back to life and walked out of the tomb, still wrapped in grave clothes. And each week in this series, I have reminded you that Jesus is inviting us into relationship with him, and I've encouraged you to take this step. But maybe for someone here this morning, maybe you are hearing him call your name this morning. Maybe you're like Lazarus, dead in that tomb. It's okay. That's where we all start, friends. We all start there. But now Jesus is calling your name, and you know that you need to answer him. You know that. It's not hard to do. Admit that you are dead in your sin and that you need Jesus to resurrect you and give you life. Repent of your sin and receive the complete forgiveness that Jesus provides because he died on the cross and rose again. Acknowledge Jesus as your Lord. And as you do, you will come to life spiritually every bit as much as Lazarus did physically. Now, faith and surrender, faith and surrender are part of our new life in Christ and we'll experience those every day. That's why Jesus told them to remove the grave clothes from Lazarus. The grave clothes symbolize the departure from the old life. 
When you say yes to Jesus, you are, being, you are then remade. The scripture says you are a new creation. The old life is gone. The new life has come. So if God is stirring and calling your name this morning, I would love to visit with you after the service. Maybe we could set up a time to meet this week and we could talk further and kind of determine next steps for you. But we're out of time this morning, so I'm going to close with this kind of this final thought. You and I live in a fallen world, tainted by sin and pain, disease and death. Like Mary and Martha, we will experience the agony and the sorrow of a world that's tainted by those things. And at times, this will knock the wind out of us and leave us reeling. And like motorists on the freeway, we'll feel stuck and we'll wonder what in the world is going on and where is God in the middle of all of this. So I want to encourage you to spend some time, some additional time in this passage in the week ahead and allow it to begin to provide for you this aerial perspective that sometimes God is doing more than what's revealed in our circumstances. The path God has marked out for us will contain pitfalls, roadblocks, obstacles, and challenges, and he might even lead us through the valley of the shadow of death, but he will never leave us or forsake us. Circumstances may not turn out the way that we had hoped or planned, but if we can gain a better perspective, like my college president had in the airplane, if we could gain a better perspective, I think we would learn to believe, we learn to believe that God's timing and his plan are good and wise and better than anything we could have imagined. Let's pray. And then the worship team is going to come up and close our service with a song. Oh, Lord, what you have revealed to us in this passage is truly amazing. Just the, just the account itself, what that must have been like for Mary and Martha and for Lazarus. You are the resurrection and the life. Lord, help us to believe this and to believe that it's true. It is a reality for us to embrace today, not just someday in the future, but today. And God, I pray at the end of this message, the same thing I prayed at the beginning, that you would change our hearts. Help us to see you for who you are. Help us to follow you in ways that honor you and help us to become more like your son, Jesus, so that we would reflect him to a watching world. May our hearts love him and follow him. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.